chapter uh, 3, verse 10. Oh. Is that uh, supernatural? Testing, testing. One, two, three. I won't, nope, just, just one of those things. Okay. Well, we'll see if that happens again. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through 17. Follow along as I read. Paul writes to his disciple Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who, li- seek, sorry, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that it is breathed out by you and is living and active, and you are present by your Holy Spirit this morning to apply your word to our hearts. So I pray, Lord, come come through my preaching to allow me to communicate your truth clearly and faithfully, and come into our hearts that we might hear, we might receive, and be transformed in faithfulness and obedience to Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, if you are a guest here, um, let me start off by explaining to you that um, typically we follow a sermon series through our uh, preaching, and uh, we're actually in a break at the moment through our current series, which is in the book of Ephesians. Our lead pastor, Paul Buckley, will be back next week to resume that series. And while um, Paul has been away from the pulpit, um, four of us have um, been asked to step in and um, deliver what is sometimes called on the preaching schedule a message of choice, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It means you have anywhere in the Bible to choose from. Um, So unlimited choice, but it can be uh, you're spoilt for choice. But what's interesting, and I don't know if you've noticed this over the last couple of weeks as we've had um, different people preach to us, um, although there's been no plan between us in what we have been preaching, God seems to have been stressing and reinforcing a theme between the messages that we've heard over the last few weeks. So three weeks ago, we heard from Caleb Collins, an intern um, helping Jacob Young at his church up in Manchester. He preached from Mark chapter 8, from about the joy and eternal life obtained through suffering, even if it means losing our life to save it. And then last week, Mike Lee preached to us from John chapter 24, how Jesus calls us to follow him, not to be distracted by the other things around us, even if, as in the case of the Apostle Peter, it means going to, the, to a cross. Even the start of this little series that we've been in, um, our pastor Jeff Havisto preached on encouraging ordinary people from Colossians chapter 1. 
And why do people need encouragement if there are no difficulties or challenges being faced, which we are, which we are under in the Christian life? And not knowing any of those messages beforehand, I had already chosen to preach on this passage in 2 Timothy. And we see Paul's exhortation to Timothy to continue in Christ, even though we have that promise of a sort in, in verse 12. That it says, all those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it seems to me that God is seeking to highlight from these messages over these last four weeks different aspects of the cost of following Jesus. And yet alongside the cost of following Jesus, he's also looking to display and the, the eclipse, the cost of following Jesus with the compelling reasons we have to continue in Christ. But before we look more closely at our passage in particular, if you're anything like me, I think we probably need some recalibrating when it comes to the subject of persecution. So here's a couple of questions just for you to think about that will help us determine whether our thoughts about persecution are properly aligned with God's word and his reality. So the first question is this. What do you think of when you think about and consider Christian persecution? And then second question what level of opposition and challenges are you expecting to receive personally because of your own Christian faith? I ask those questions because I think as Christians living in the West, we currently enjoy a level of security and peace that many Christians throughout the world do not currently enjoy and throughout Christian history have not enjoyed. And that means that our social environment that we're currently in is vastly different from the one that Paul was in when he was writing to Timothy, and that a lot of Christians around the world today are facing. And we need to make sure that we are deliberate and work a little to make sure our minds are first and foremost informed by God's word, and not just by our upbringing and maybe the small part of the world in which we live. So when it comes to persecution, if you think mainly about the treatment of Christians in other countries, usually far from here, where Christians can and do face severe persecution for their faith, maybe threats and acts of violence, maybe false imprisonment and lack of justice, maybe even death. If that's all you think of in terms of Christian persecution, then you're going to have a hard time owning for yourself Paul's compelling reasons within this passage for how you can resist opposition when it comes to you. You'll be ill-equipped for the challenges when they come. And equally, if you're dial for persecution, you expect to personally receive your own Christian faith is fixed on low or even none, then you are unlikely to embrace fully the path that Christ has set before you. And you will be limiting how you walk in joy-filled obedience in all of his ways. So let's be informed by what God says to us in this passage, in verse 12 in particular, where it says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. The certainty that there will be challenges to all who profess faith in Christ means that our persecution dial needs to cover the full range of Christian persecution and recognize that under that term persecution, there is a spectrum. Yes, at one end of the spectrum, there are those extremes that we are unlikely to experience in this country at this present time. 
And we should consider how we can support and serve brothers and sisters around the world who are facing levels of persecution that we find unimaginable. But towards the other end of the dial, the other end of the spectrum, we face challenges that are very real and very present for us. Maybe it's at work where an innocent and gracious conversation with a colleague about what you believe ends up with you being called into the boss's office because your so-called intolerant views will not be tolerated in the workplace. Or maybe it's at home where family gatherings, which were once fun and joy-filled, are now tense and cold because your efforts to share the love of Christ have been rejected and rejected with disdain. Or maybe it's on the sports team or as part of school where because you won't follow along with the worldly and ungodly ways of some of your friends, you're now subject to their gossip and slander on social media. I'm not saying by any means that any of those persecutions and sufferings are of the same degree as others face around the world. But they are real and they are degrees of persecution. Because from the enemy's point of view, they are intended to bring about the same goal. The devil's strategy with persecution is not to crank it up as high as, you, as high as he can and watch a Christian suffer. No, Satan's purpose for persecution is to cause us to deny our faith in Christ, to turn from faithful obedience to the Lord. And he's not only looking for bold, outright denial of Christ, he is satisfied with simply choosing not to take the next step in following Christ wherever he may be leading us. And you see, unlike for some other forms of suffering, persecution offers a unique temptation and challenge to the Christian because we actually have the ability to make it stop just by stopping following Christ. You can avoid that summons to the boss's office by staying quiet. Family gather gatherings could be fun again if all you do is eat and watch football. You can be part of the popular crowd if you just join in with what they're doing. So hopefully that serves to adjust and calibrate our persecution dials and understand that challenges of some degree or another are certain in our Christian faith. And we're now ready to receive God's words to us in this passage. And when we do that, I want us to look for the answers to two questions. If challenges are certain, then why continue in Christ? And if challenges are certain, how do we continue in Christ? So the first question, how, sorry, why continue in Christ if challenges are certain? See, normally we avoid danger, don't we? As parents, we train our children to avoid the danger of crossing the street. We, as drivers, car drivers, we're alert to signs and markings on the road that warn us of danger ahead, and we take the necessary precautions to avoid that, whatever it may be. Yet the Apostle Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy because he knew the challenges Timothy was going to face in his faith. And rather than avoid them, he specifically wanted to encourage and equip Timothy with compelling reasons to continue in Christ in the face of certain challenges. In the same way, God's Word encourages and equips us today to do the same. And this passage, I believe, gives us two 
very compelling reasons why we should continue in Christ. So the first compelling reason and answer to that question, why continue in Christ, is that this, is this, that Christ is our eternal salvation. Let me read verse 14 and 15 again. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul exhorts Timothy to continue in his faith in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus is our eternal salvation. And Paul doesn't need to spell that out for Timothy. Timothy has sat under Paul's teaching and served alongside him. He's heard him preach throughout the Middle East in synagogues and in marketplaces. And if you're a Christian, you know the good news of the gospel that Paul compacts into that very small expression of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Yet even as Christians, our perspective on life, our perspective on eternal life, can easily get out of whack. We may believe that Jesus has secured for us eternal life, but I admit I don't always perceive that as my greatest need or my greatest joy. And perhaps you're the same. Often my faith sees very dimly into eternity, and I'm far more aware of today's challenges. Yes, Jesus has saved me to eternal life, but is he able to keep me from losing my friend and being ridiculed if I talk to him about Jesus? I know that Christ has saved me, and my eternal life is secure in him. But is my job secure, and am I able to provide for my family if I'm going to be faithful to speak about what I believe. Well, if you're like me, then Paul reminds us in this passage a simple truth of what is of eternal importance. And God graciously meets, and as God has graciously met our need of eternal importance, we know that we can entrust everything else of lesser importance into his care. God has given us his word to, f- to fix our easily distorted perspective, so that we can see our, our ultimate need is our need for salvation. The Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy about Jesus' mission. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And that title, Sinners, applies to all of us, rebels against our Creator. And it undercuts all other perceived problems that we may face or think we face. If our lives are free of all problems and needs and yet we remain sinners, we would be in the most desperate need. The Bible says that we are all destined to die and after that to face judgment. And it is a fearful thing for a sinner to come before a holy God. Unimaginable punishment is the only just verdict against us. And yet God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world not to judge us, but to save us. And through giving his life, his perfect life for us upon the cross, Jesus received the punishment due sinners So that sinners who trust in his sacrifice, in their place, find the charges against them dealt with. 
so that we are now, and they're never to be brought up again, so that we are now forgiven before God. And in his amazing love, God now welcomes us as forgiven sinners into his eternal kingdom and glory. That's the eternal perspective provided by the gospel. And it's the perspective provided by Paul in his encouragement to Timothy to continue in Christ even when he faces challenges. Elsewhere, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is the claim that Paul's making before us in the Bible in this passage in verse 15. The sacred writings which he reminds Timothy of, or the scriptures, they follow a singular, consistent, eternal storyline. That is the point, in one way or another, to God's plan. They all point, sorry, in one way or another, to God's plan for salvation for mankind through Jesus Christ. Let me give you a, a picture of what that may mean, what that means. I've shared before, I think, I enjoy hiking and camping. As a young man, I was able to do more of that, and I did a lot in England. One of my favorite lo locations is the Lake District, which is in the northwest of England. And one of these hikes I went on um, was while I was hiking through a particular mountain range, and I came to the top of a hill, and all of a sudden, before me, I looked, and there was the most striking view that I've ever seen in all my life. There was a view down a beautiful, lush, green valley, and at the end of the valley was this lake, <clears throat> and, the, and the sun was reflecting off the lake, and behind there, there were then rows of mountain ranges, and the light was kind of on them, so they were in different shades of greys and blues. And it was quite literally breathtaking. And I could have stood there, for, I don't know how long, to soak in that view. And it actually is, is actually one of those pictures that is burned in my mind. Even tw over 20 years later, I can still picture that view. Now imagine with me for a moment that I was so captured by that site <clears throat> that I decided to build a house right there on that spot that affords me the best view of that vision. But it's a rather unusual house. It has a hundred windows in it, and every single one of them are in the same wall facing that view. And every window allows me some glimpse, some vision, some sight of that view that I'm so enamored with. The windows are all different shapes and sizes. Some are broad and big windows and give you a big view of the vista before you. Some are small windows and they just lay a glimpse of part of the view. Others perhaps have opaque glass in them, so it's a little hard to make out all the details. But all of the windows are intended to direct your gaze to this one glorious vision in front of you. That's Paul's claim in our passage that all of God's communication to us through the Scriptures is to make us wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And once our perspective is correctly aligned to God's, this singular overarching priority that Christ is our eternal salvation provides a compelling reason to continue in Christ. If you're examining Christianity here this morning, we're, we're very glad that you're here. This is, this is a great place to do that. But you need to understand 
that Christianity makes this singular claim, that all have turned from God and rightfully deserve his judgment and condemnation, that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. If your main attraction to Christianity is that it presents a good way of living, a moral code by which to live and to treat others, you need to understand that is weak motivation to continue in it when living that way is hard and when you will be persecuted if you continue in that way. The Bible is not, first and foremost, a book of moral living, of do's and don'ts, nor is it a manual on how to raise your kids, on how to have a good marriage, nor is it a theology textbook on how to have the right doctrine, although it achieves all of those things. But it is first and foremost a book with one common thread weaved through every page, God's plan for salvation through Christ Jesus. To all who turn from their sin in repentance and faith in Christ, God promises forgiveness and eternal life with him. So the very first compelling reason that Paul presents to us this morning of why we should continue in Christ, even though challenges are certain, is that Christ is our eternal salvation. The second compelling reason he provides to us is that Christ is our present rescuer. Let me read the opening verses of our passage in verse 10 and 11. Paul writes, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my, pray, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now we need to understand a little bit of Paul and Timothy's shared history to properly understand what Paul wants Timothy to see from this passage and that we need to see from these verses as well. Paul basically lived a life full of persecution. You can read about his life throughout the book of Acts. And there are many different examples of how he faced persecution for his faith. So why he calls Timothy's attention to these particular situations of persecution in these towns, it's important for us to understand. These towns that he refers to, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, Paul first visited those on his first missionary journey through what is now modern-day Turkey. We have an account of it in our Bibles, starting in Acts chapter 13, and I'll give a quick recap because it'll be helpful for us to understand what Paul is saying. Paul went to Antioch to preach the gospel, and initially the Jews there were very enthusiastic and received it well. But when they realized that Paul's message wasn't just for the Jews, but was for non-Jews as well, they reacted jealously and drove Paul away and out of that city. So Paul went into the next town, a town of Iconium, and there we read that that city was also divided over Paul's teachings. Some were very much for him, but others were very much against him. And after a long time, the persecution against him grew to such a point that he learned the Jews planned to stone him. And so he fled that city onto the next town of Lystra. And in Acts chapter 14, we read again, Paul is enthusiastically received in that town. But the Jews that he annoyed in Antioch and in Iconium were so um, put out by him that they actually followed him all the way to Lystra, maybe a 10-day journey on foot, so keen was their hatred and desire to persecute him. And these Jews, they stirred up the crowd and 
Let's read together what happens next in Acts chapter 19, sorry, Acts chapter 14, verse 19 onwards. We have this recorded. It says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So in verse 19, we see that they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. It wasn't that they stoned him and left him for dead. Rather, they stoned him and thought he was dead. That was the purpose of stoning. Stoning wasn't a warning to teach someone a lesson. Stoning was a method of execution. But by God's grace, Paul survived. He did a rather odd thing, as Paul is wont to do. He got up and he returned to the town that had just, sent, just kicked him out and stoned him. And he stayed the night, and the next day he went on to the next town, and then on his return journey, he went back through those three cities again, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, to encourage the churches on his way back home. In fact, Paul traveled through those three cities on every one of his missionary journeys. Now, it's a little bit later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, that we see the reason why Paul comments on these cities in particular in, in this passage to Timothy before us today. It's there in Acts 16 that we learn that Lystra was actually Timothy's hometown. And it would be safe to assume that Timothy certainly heard of Paul's persecution if he didn't even see it with his very own eyes. And on Paul's second return journey through the town of Lystra, he took Timothy under his wing to disciple him. So that's the history that Timothy would, would understand and remember when Paul reminds him of those towns. But I wonder what Timothy would have made of verse 11 in our passage in, this, in the letter to him. Today, and I wonder what you make of those words in verse 11. According to Paul, he summarizes all of his persecutions in those towns by saying, From them all, the Lord rescued me. Now remember, Paul was stoned to the point of death, and yet he says, The Lord rescued me. Is that how you would describe Paul's experience? What does he mean when he says, he endured persecution, and yet from them all, the Lord rescued him. Paul's not talking about some sort of second Damascus Road experience. You may remember Paul's first encounter with the risen Christ, where he was physically blinded by the glory of the Lord and given very clear, practical evidence of God's, excuse me, God's power. That didn't happen here. If you read in those chapters in Acts what Paul's talking about, there is no dramatic appearance of Christ to rescue him. He was preaching the gospel, he was stoned, he got up, and he kept on going. End of story. Nor is Paul using some cheap Christian cliche. Yes, I could have died, but I didn't. So I guess I should say something like, the Lord rescued me. But it certainly wasn't a rescue I was hoping for. The rescue that Paul refers to in verse 11 is not miraculous and it's not unique to the Apostle Paul, nor is it a worthless cliche. He is speaking here of a promise of rescue that Timothy can claim for himself 
and that we can claim for ourselves today. The promise of a person, Christ Jesus, to be our ever-present rescuer. This is what explodes the idea that the Christian faith is merely pie in the sky when you die and instead reveals it to be a living hope for the present as well as for the future. God didn't rescue Paul by preventing him from being stoned. God rescued Paul by enabling him to continue through those persecutions, continuing Christ to the end of his life. And he did it by Jesus being with Paul through the Holy Spirit, through everything he endured. And when Christ was with him, to Paul, nothing else mattered. In fact, Paul's experience of God's faithfulness to answer what is actually what Jesus taught us all to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. You'll remember perhaps one of the lines of the Lord's Prayer is this, deliver us from evil. The word deliver in that verse is actually the same one used in verse 11 and translated rescue. Actually, some Bibles, your translation may say that the Lord delivered me in Paul's writing. So imagine that like me, you've prayed the Lord's Prayer many times, but it wasn't until I studied this passage in 2 Timothy that I saw how God might choose to answer that prayer. Not necessarily by removing evil and persecution from my life, but by coming alongside me and delivering and rescuing us through it. I know we have some firefighters among us, but I hope for all of us that none of us have really been trapped in a fire and put it in harm's way that way. But imagine for a moment that you are in a house fire and you are trapped in your bedroom and you can't get out. All you can do is sit and wait to be rescued. You hear the sirens of the truck, fire truck coming down the street and you sigh a deep sigh of relief when the door finally bursts open and a firefighter comes in. He comes over to you and he puts his arm around you and he says, it's going to be okay. I'm here to rescue you. I'm not going to leave you. We're going to stay here and see this through together. What would you make of that? Wouldn't you want to ask whether he had any backup? Somebody else coming? Who would actually maybe take you out of the burning building? I'm sure that that wouldn't be the sort of rescue you were looking for. But when the rescuer is the Lord Jesus Christ, to Paul, everything is different. It's not that he forgot the trial of persecution that he was in. It's that in his trial, his suffering was eclipsed by a far more glorious reality. That finding fellowship and delight in Christ, his rescuer. And this theme is repeated throughout the scriptures. That God is faithful to rescue and deliver, not at a distance, but by coming alongside us. Often in ways that are different to the rescue that we had hoped for. But nevertheless, every time, God satisfies with his presence. The Psalms are full of examples, elsewhere in the Bible as well, but the Psalms particularly are rich with examples of this, this, this word, deliver us, deliver and rescue. And one of them is found in Psalm 34. I think they have some verses, the first few verses there. Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Brothers and sisters, we have the same hope and confidence available to us. That though challenges are certain, we have a compelling reason to continue in Christ because Christ is our present rescuer. Now, Paul's intention in these verses are to encourage and to equip us. But it is entirely possible that at this point you are very much aware, rather, of God's conviction. Conviction over having turned away from Christ, maybe just in degrees, in small ways, when persecution or the threat of persecution has come before you. Let me remind you, remember that God's love and mercy transformed Saul, the chief of persecutors, into Paul, the apostle, and kept him in Christ to the very end. Receive God's fresh grace. Repent, receive forgiveness and grace from God and ask him to press afresh into your hearts these compelling reasons to continue in Christ through challenge and persecution. Because although they are certain, we have compelling reasons to continue in Christ. So those address the question, why continue in Christ? The second question we want to ask of the passage is, how? How do we continue in Christ if challenges are certain? So this is a form of application, application that Paul provides to us. And we want to make sure that we are informed by the passage, not just think, okay, got that, got my reasons for staying in Christ. I can do this by myself. Thank you very much. No, let's listen humbly and receive how God instructs us us in his word. So the first way that we see from this passage that God has equipped us to continue in Christ is we look to the saints. In verse 14 of um, the passage in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. That word who, whom is in the plural form. And I take that to mean that Paul is referring to several different people. Certainly he's referring to Timothy's mother and grandmother, who we can read more about actually in in the first chapter of this letter, who raised Timothy in the faith and taught him that the the scriptures that are wise lead him to be wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. But Paul's also talking about himself. Back in verse 10, he says, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. And he goes on. Basically, he says to Timothy, you have carefully studied not just my teaching, but you've been a student of my whole life. But in those verses, 10 and 11, Paul is not commending himself to Timothy. Rather, he sees his life as commending Christ, whom he followed. Paul's life, how he lived and what he taught, how he continued in faith, it all commends Christ. Paul intended Timothy to remember Paul's life before him and to imitate Paul so that he too would continue in Christ. So we can be encouraged to continue in Christ in the same way. Consider, not only do we have Paul's life before us, we also have the lives of other, uh, other saints in the Scriptures 
who have continued in the faith through persecution. Last week we were reminded of the Apostle Peter. But we have Stephen and others through the New Testament. In the Old Testament we have Job, David and so many others. All of whose lives we can study and see how they were um, faithful to continue in Christ, continue in their faith in God, despite the challenges they faced. And then beyond Scripture, we have, the, the, we have church history that God has preserved through to today. So we can study the lives of those who have remained faithful through bitter suffering and persecution, and in doing so, it reveals a Christ who is worth following to the end. That fallen people can ultimately remain faithful despite opposition should encourage us not to look just to the people, but to look to the God and to Christ whom they follow. So let me suggest to you what application may look like. Study the lives of Christians through church history. Not just as a hobby because you like that sort of thing, but for the very encouragement and equipping of your faith. Perhaps continue studying the life of Paul in the book of Acts and see how he faced persecution but remained faithful. Maybe find yourself a good Christian biography or autobiography. Those that make much of what a person believed and how that affected how they lived their life. Look for how they get knocked down and how God brings them up. Look not for those so much who knew great blessings through their life, but those who knew great hardship, persecution and suffering. And you will be strengthened to continue in Christ through your own challenges. But I want to recognize that there is a peculiar temptation to write off the encouragement that we can receive and are meant to receive through the lives of faithful Christians before us in history. I don't know about you, but often my response can be, well, okay, but that's them. Clearly they're special. They must have been some sort of hero of the faith. They've got special gifts, which I don't have. I could never endure the kind of persecution that they're enduring. And I think that's why Paul intentionally gives us verse 16 and 17 of this passage, where he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, Paul wants Timothy to remember that he continued in Christ through persecution, not because Paul was special, but because his faith was grounded and strengthened by the same scriptures that were available to Timothy and that he had grown up knowing and that we have available to us today. And that brings me to my second point of how we continue in the faith. We look to the scriptures. Paul specifically is speaking to his, in his position as a man of God, which means, really means a teacher of the word. So this has special application for pastors and preachers, but there is general application for every believer. God has made his word available to all of us so that we may be complete, lacking in nothing, and fully equipped to continue in faith in Christ when enduring persecution for our faith. Now, you're probably familiar with these verses. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. But how quickly do we apply them? How quickly and fully do we live by them in our lives? What would it look like for you to grow in applying those truths to your everyday life. 
most obviously perhaps is the priority you give to reading the Bible and how frequently you are in it, to being refilled and refreshed, reminded and renewed in God's truth to you. You don't need to spend hours and hours in it every day, although if you can on occasion, that's great. But do you go weeks and weeks without being in it at all? That will not serve you, and they will not equip you for the challenges that are certain to come. Nothing can replace being in God's Word. But also, how are you using God's Word in your relationship with others? As Mike mentioned earlier, we continue to meet in, in community groups through the week um, outside of the church gathering here. Are you eager and grateful to receive scriptures that others might bring up and bring to you to help you in the trials you're facing? Or do you grow a little bit irritable and dismissive and rather you'd had some more real-life counsel. In the past, God has challenged me on my own approach to the Scriptures, and it's an approach that I call the Goldilocks mentality. I realized that there were parts of the Bible that I thought of as being too hard, and so I would avoid those. And there were other parts of the Bible that I thought of being too easy, so I would skim over those too. And I would just be comfortable to settle on those parts of the Bible that would just right. But these verses tell us that all of the scriptures are God's word to us. And all of it, need, is, we need it all in order to be complete. For the work of God has for us. We are not free to dismiss sections of it because they aren't to our preference. So for those parts of the Bible that may be too easy, may be simple, may be very familiar to you, remember that they come from divine lungs. And our infinite lungs are going to spend forever taking in all that is on offer through them. And for those that are too hard, or seem to be too hard, remember that it's not hard like quantum physics. You know? It's not simply beyond my ability, full stop. It's more like shoveling snow. I know that's far from our minds from the time being, but soon enough it will be a reality. When it comes down to it, all of us typically can shovel snow. Some may be faster than others. But it's more a question of motivation rather than ability. All of us can dig into even the hard passages of scriptures with the right tools. And we can pray with the psalmist, if nothing else, incline my heart to your testimonies. And we can trust that as we press into God's word, God will press it into our hearts. There are many excellent resources to help you getting into the Bible, and I'd love to recommend some to you. Actually, for myself, I've always found the Psalms difficult to get into. I don't know why. I know many people love the Psalms. I've never really got my arms around them. So right now I'm using a devotional by Tim Keller, which has been excellent to guide me through, help me grapple with what God's saying, and find refreshment for my soul. Maybe for you, it's something like the ESV Study Bible would be a helpful tool just to equip you in, in looking up and, and referencing things that are difficult, a little hard to understand. It's worth the effort because God has given us this book for a reason and tells us that we need it to be complete. Let me conclude with a story from the life of a saint who endured persecution. If the band could come up, please. Many of you may be familiar with the life of Corrie ten Boom. She and her family were Dutch Christians during the Second World War. And they sought to be faithful to this, this text. 
And they sought to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. And for them, that meant sheltering Jews from the Nazis. But eventually, their whole family was captured and sent away. They were divided up, sent off to different prison camps. Corrie and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück, a Nazi death camp where nearly 100,000 women were killed. And they spent the rest of the war there where they endured unimaginable sufferings. But by God's grace, there were numerous miracles that occurred during their time there, one of which was that they were able to bring a Bible into the barracks in which those women were, were staying. And every night, they would lead the women in those barracks in prayer and then in looking at God's Word. And by God's grace, they continued in Christ. Not by reading God out of the situation that they were in, but by reading God out of His Word. And by God's grace, they continued in Christ by reminding themselves and telling those around them of the eternal salvation that they have in Christ Jesus and that He is their present rescuer. For Corrie ten Boom, that meant continuing in Christ to survive that camp and to encourage millions thereafter through her testimony and through her writings. For Betsy ten Boom, that meant continuing in Christ to the end of her life in that camp where Jesus faithfully delivered her into the kingdom of his Father. Corrie ten Boom, you're probably familiar possibly with her, her book, The Hiding Place. In that she writes this. She says, God's viewpoint is sometimes different from ours. So different that we could not even guess it unless he had given us a book which tells us such things. Brothers and sisters, challenges to our faith are certain. None of us will choose them, yet they are to come, and you may be facing them even now. The Scriptures hold for us compelling reasons to continue in Christ. He is our eternal salvation and our ever-present rescuer. And God has given us reliable means to stay faithful by looking to the saints and looking to the Scriptures. Let us continue in Christ together. We pray. Father God, you are sovereign. 